helpful. So I, in our first marriage, I'm, I'm in my third marriage to my first wife. If you do it right, you can make your partner the best therapist you've never had. This episode is sponsored by the Jewish Children's Library Fund. As far back as she can remember, Chaya remembers her father's desktop ständer. It was always covered with scotch taped on scraps of paper with his favorite Hayom Yom quotes. One of his favorites was from the 22nd of Tevet, which includes, It is an absolute duty for every person to spend a half an hour every day thinking about the Torah education of children. So now that her father is a Zaidi with many grandchildren, Nanahara, this Hayom Yom has prompted him to take action. So he created the Jewish Children's Library Fund to help start Jewish children's libraries within communities all over the U.S. And they specifically want to create children's libraries in a community member's home so that there's a separate location besides for the school or shul to get another taste of Jewish pride. They offer matching grants and a database to get your library started. If you or someone you know is interested in opening up a library, please text Reuven Rockford at 954-709-9541 and check out their website at www.jewishchildrenslibraryfund.com. We will put the link in the podcast notes. And their website features a bookstore as well as some other products which they call hoodies, including their favorite and personalized acrylic tzedakah box that you can order for your kids or grandkids or friends. When you order a goodie, you are joining the Jewish Children's Library Fund and helping start libraries too. You know, I think that's great. I think that we need to bring reading back. There's so many devices out there that kids are using, and I think a good old book, such a nice opportunity for connection. Um, I think this is a very cool concept, so check them out. Yes, yeah, so we actually have donated to this fund because we really appreciate the initiative to see our children reading a beautiful, meaningful book that's going to inspire them to do an act of goodness and kindness. And one second, Ida, you wrote an amazing book that I read to my kids at night. I did write a book called Sarah Dreamer. I wrote it because I feel like very often when my kids want me to read a book or when they were little and they wanted me to read a book, I pick up a book and I would just like read it to them or them. And I wanted to create a book that a parent could read and also internalize the messages themselves. Because I feel like when we're more engaged, when we read to our kids, you know, our kids feel it. That was actually the impetus. That's what the, the real intention was to have parents connect to their kids, which it sounds like this is what Jewish Children's Library Fed is trying to do, is create libraries that will help people connect. And also empower children. And I think your book did that. Like your book is all about like this girl who dreams and what can she be in life. And I think that that's empowering thought, like for the kids to be able to dream about what they want to be one day, who they are now. And I think that this library is same thing, you know, empowering children to think and to grow and to be the best versions of themselves. And this is a great sponsorship. If you want to sponsor an episode and be a partner with us, we would love that. If you'd like to sponsor or co-sponsor uh, a future episode, reach out to us at Anita at gmail.com, R-I-V-K-A-H and E-D-A at gmail.com. So thank you, Jewish Children's Library Fund for partnering with us, making a difference. I really appreciated this conversation that you're about to hear. It's an excellent couples and family therapist and an international trainer, Dr. Asael Ramanelli, who lives in Israel. And what is very unique about this conversation is that he gets vulnerable and shares his own experiences in his own marriage so we can relate and understand 
the tools and, and how to better our marriages. I think it's really important to have some vulnerability in a conversation when you're um, working in this field because it just shows the people that you're working with that you're you're in it with them, you're in the trenches with them. Yeah, you'll hear in the conversation he was sharing an experience he had with his wife, and I was like, "Wow, you're you're a therapist and you go through this." It kind of gives you hope to know, okay, we're all human. This sounds like marriage. We're all in this together, and you need to use tools as well in order to grow or in your relationship. So I found that refreshing and hopeful and helpful for all of us. Um, I agree with everything that you said, Rivka.、Uh, he's a very sought-after、uh, speaker and trainer. He's actually、um, the founder and co-director of the Potential State Institute for Enriching Relationships, which integrates the worlds of therapy, arts, and education to create. Safe spaces for people to connect to themselves and to others. He's also the artistic director of the Or Chozer Playback Theater Ensemble in Jerusalem. And over the past 15 years, he, Dr. Romanelli, has helped individuals, couples, and families to feel more free and playful in their work and in their life. And I think in this conversation, we see that side of him. And we actually plan on doing a follow-up. We are all going to experience. A conflict between him and his wife, or how they get through some kind of difficult conversation in real time. So look out for that. Dr. Romanelli also publishes content regularly on the Potential State podcast YouTube channel, and he has a website as well. And we'll include all of those、uh, resources in our podcast notes. If you have,、uh, if you'd like to see more and hear more、um, of his teachings, enjoy. Welcome to From the Inside Out. I'm Rifka, and I'm Ida. We're mums, wives, entrepreneurs, and friends on a mission to change the world for the better, one conversation at a time. Through interviews with world-renowned thinkers, leaders, and our everyday heroes, we bring you wisdom, insight, and practical tools that can change your life for the better. We believe that every experience provides us with an opportunity for learning. Our job is to be patient with the process of growth and trust that our journey will lead us to where we're meant to be. Words can inspire us, but it's only once we channel that inspiration into action that we begin to experience the positive change we want to see in the world. We hope this platform will inspire you to create positive change in mind, body, and soul from the inside out. Thank you for being here, and let the conversation begin. Ida and I were both talking,、uh, speaking about how often people only really start doing the real work once they encounter a crisis. Exactly.、And Yes, and we were wondering, oh, how can we change that? How can we get people to see a marriage therapist、That's、before、right. a couple feels stuck and are in a rut? How do we shift perspective in that marriage therapy is a good thing to do before the crisis happens? And do you believe that to be、yes. true? So here's here's my working assumption: we will all be married more than once. The question will be with the same partner. I'll let that I'll let that sink, and I'll repeat it one more time. That's by the way, that's Esther Perel, and she basically says we will all marry more than once. The question is, will we be with the same partner? What that what does that mean? We're always changing and evolving. Every seven years, every cell of our body is new, so it's just inevitable that our marriage will change. So the idea is, most of us grew up with parents that had one marriage for twenty, thirty, forty years, or that they've divorced. But when I mean marriage in, in systemic therapy, we call this a dance. Every couple from the second date has a dance. A power dynamic, right?、Um, uh, we, the father-daughter, the mother-child, the pursuer-distancer, the 
the Ministry of Education and the Minister of Finance, right? The the external world and the internal world, the head and the heart. Okay, so every couple has that. Okay, from the second date onward. Why? Because in systemic therapy, we believe that a relationship is a pattern. You can only build a pattern with someone who's willing to build that pattern with you. It takes two to tango. So what people don't realize is that you can actually remarry your partner. You can actually re re envision, re reimagine, and renegotiate your marriage. Which means you could have a different dynamic. But for most of us, that, that's why I want to rebrand marriage. I mean, the book I'm writing right now is called "Marriage Is Freedom." If you evolve with your partner, you can be more and more yourself. And the best part of remarrying your partner is you get all the benefits of somebody who knows you. Plus, all the excitement of a new person, of a new dimension. And when I mean it, remarrying, it means it doesn't mean it means basically we're bringing more and more sides of ourselves. Because as I'm getting older, my body's changing, my libido is changing, my personality, my curious, my interests, right? But a lot of us are afraid that what we have now is going to last for forty years, and we're afraid to bring our new evolving self. So, if I'm going back to your question, is Marriage therapy or couple counseling, it, the really question is, is about, are you, do you want to keep evolving? Because I think the three, I call them the three amigos. The three biggest thing that brings people to couples therapy is boredom, fighting, and what we call thirds, things that are outside of the relationship. Boredom, fighting, incessant fighting, or right, perpetual fighting. And third, something from the outside that's threatening the relationship inward. All three of these things are natural and unavoidable. The question is, are we harnessing them to grow? Because oftentimes people, you're right. People come to therapy because there's a crisis, okay? And they're like, they're like, I want to go back to where we were, or where's the woman I married? She's she's gone, she's gone. She's she's not the same person you married ten years ago, twenty seven years ago. It's impossible because she's not the same person. So instead of looking backwards, like I wish you can go back, I, I help I help couples remarry, and then I'll say to them, I hope what I'm witnessing is the slow death of your current marriage. Because it needs to die. There's these relationships, these marriages, these these contracts we signed ten years ago, twenty years ago, should be renegotiated because we're different people. And I think that's the reframe I want to offer people. Couples therapy is not to fix something that's broken; it's helping you evolve to the next evolution of you and the next evolution of your marriage. Nice, but doesn't something have to? It is, in essence, though, broken before it can evolve. Correct, or can it evolve without it being broken? That's a great question. So I think, I think oftentimes, what, what do you mean broke? What's a crisis? Usually it'll either be an affair, something very dramatic, right? A midlife crisis. But oftentimes, if couples are more aware to it, you will, you will start feeling a little bit bored, a little bit of resentment, a little bit of contempt, a little bit of like, is this it? Is this it? Now, you're right that most, usually when you feel that, people are like, well, I guess, you know, they kind of brush it off. They don't want to deal with it because most of us, Grew up with parents that their marriage was, at best, the backdrop to their life, and at worst, a weight or like a little, even a jail. And what I really believe in, and in, in kind of the paradigm of couples therapy that I work, which is differentiation based, and I'll talk about differentiation a little bit later. But the metaphor we give is a crucible. A marriage is a hot place, a hot oven where you melt, you reborn, you get up, you go down. It's 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 fiery. But a lot of us don't step into the crucible. Right. By the way, uh, perpetual fighting doesn't necessarily mean it's it's crucible. It just means we're, we're, it's hard for us to stay next to each other. So by stepping into the crucible, we're actually going to find the vitality and the curiosity and the spontaneity. And, and like that is what we're looking for. But a lot of us didn't see parents stepping into the crucible. And I'll say one more thing about this is David Schnarch, who's a couple therapist, he says that 
marriage is a people growing mechanism developed by humans. And as a happy, I've been married to Galit for 13 years. I'm a very happy customer of marriage, right? But people don't realize that you can grow through your marriage. And I've been in therapy for over a decade as a client. And I've grown more in my 13 years with my wife, Galit, than all those years of being a client. Why? Because if you step into the crucible, you get what we call in Hebrew an ezelkenigdo, right? Uh, uh, a helpmate that's also pushing me, someone to push against me, that's challenging me, that's stretching me, that doesn't take my nonsense. I can say they can see beyond my facade. But a lot of us don't step into the heat until, as you said, Rivka, until there's a crisis. But if we can help couples step into the crucible, and we, you know, me and Galit, we do, we meet couples before they get married, we kind of give them the greatest hits and we try to give them these reframes early. So we don't meet them after 20 years, after 10 years, when one of them, you know, either has an affair or is contemplating divorce. He's like, is this it? Is this what we're going to have for the next 40 years? And we're trying to say that, no, you can remarry. But if you really want to remarry, you're going to have to step into the heat. You're going to have to confront yourself. You're going to have to come out and say, this is who I am now. And this is kind of what I'm interested in. And you're right that 10 years ago, I wanted to be a stay-at-home mom. But 10 years later, I don't. Or let's flip the genders, right? 10 years ago, I was happy to be the main, the sole, the primary breadwinner. And I'm done. I'm done. I want to write a book. I want to study arts. I want to be with the kids. I actually never thought of it this way. Like you can be in the same relationship with different people or in a different relationship with the same person. That's so powerful to know that when you're working on a relationship, it doesn't make a difference if it's this with the same person or with a different person. It's really about how you show up. And obviously barring extreme circumstances, that's I think that can be very comforting for people who are working on their marriage, who are maybe going through a rough patch. And also for people who, who have gotten divorced for whatever reason and uh, are maybe remarried and are experiencing the same problems, I think for them too, it can offer a perspective shift. And for people who are embarking on this journey of trying to find their soulmate is just recognizing that there are different stages of a relationship. If, um, if you, yeah. yeah. Can I just, I'll just tag on to that. Edda. Yeah. It's like, I'm actually, I'm coming like for the people that want personal development and personal growth, for the ones that go to workshops and go to therapy, if you do it right, you can make your partner the best therapist you've never had. And it's basically how do you do that? <laughs> Love you block, that. Yeah, that's great. You, you, by blocking your exits and asking for you more and wanting more from you. And I think for a lot of people, it's the ball and chain, right? But actually, if you reframe and say, if you want to evolve and grow, the best way to grow is in a dedicated, committed, long-term relationship. By the way, we can call it marriage. I don't, I don't care if it's the, you know, the legal term. A committed, long-term relationship, intimate relationship, is the best way to develop and fulfill yourself, to bring more and more shades of yourself. And I think that's the reframe I want to offer young people and also people in their marriages. It's just a, it's hard to to sell something that none of us have seen our parents do. The, some of us were lucky enough to, to see our parents evolve, right? But most of us saw them more or less doing the same thing 20, 30, 40 years or divorced. So how do yes, you sir. define a good marriage? For me, a good marriage is when I'm free to bring all the different parts of myself. It's the positive liberty to bring all the different sides of myself in a committed long-term relationship. And what's the, what's a positive liberty? So, so there's two types of liberty. There's negative liberty where nobody says, tells me what to do. I'm free to do whatever I want. I'm on a desert island. I'm single. I can date whoever I want. I can do whatever I want. Um, a positive liberty is I take upon myself limitations and there I feel free. Okay. 
Yeah. So, so marriage is, is a positive liberty. I'm taking, I'm, I'm committing myself for this one partner, but inside of that, I want to feel free to be all the different shades of myself. And we have a recipe, me and Gilly, we've developed over the year, a kind of a model that we teach couples that if you follow this model, it will help you um, kind of evolve and feel that freedom because marriage should be free. You should, or at, at best, it's a freedom to be all the different parts of yourself. And here's the best part. I can show you the worst parts of myself. We call that the shadow. I'm a shadow, which is all the parts that I repress or hide or project on others. It could be my aggression and my jealousy, my vulnerability. But if you really want to feel loved, truly loved, you have to show your shadow. Because if I don't show you my shadow and only show you my best parts with my concealer and my smile, then when you say to me, I said, I love you, I'll be like, if she only knew, if she only knew how crazy, violent, sad, depressed, angry, then what happens, nothing's touching me. And then I have this, we call this self-presentation. I'm in this, I'm presenting myself in my intimate relationship, but I'm not really authentic. And I feel like a lot of people are lonely in their marriage because they have, they have too much concealer on. Because they're afraid that if I show my shadow, my partner won't love me or they'll be disgusted by me. Because when we date, we show our best selves, right? You know, rarely do we say, okay, here's my worst traits on, my, on a first date. Even after a month, you try to hide them. And I think that's exactly the reframe I'm trying to do. If you show, like a big part of our work is helping people own their shadow. How do we do that? Like get comfortable owning our shadow. And also how do we balance being vulnerable with keeping a certain level of like mystique or distance within a relationship, you know, to keep it alive, like where, where we're not too much in our shadow self, but not too little either. Like, is there a balance? And if there is, how do we find it? How do we show up with our shadow selves and not be terrified of what might happen if, and when we do? Yeah. So the basis, so let's, let's walk through the model and we'll answer that question. So the basis for everything is going to, might surprise you. It's play, play, playfulness. Okay. Uh, let's say, I want to say something about play. What's the difference in game and play? Okay. Game has rules, right? There's winner and loser. Think chess, monopoly. Here's another thing. It's a game. Mortgage is a game. Your career is a game. Marriage is a game. Okay. It's one long game. There's a goal. Bring kids, whatever, have a career, whatever. But a lot of us are missing play. What's play? Play is a soft perception of the world. I'm not taking myself too seriously. I'm not taking the world too seriously. I'm not taking my marriage too seriously. I'm flexible. I'm playful. We call this also potential state. The name of our institute is potential state. Potential state is the state between reality and fantasy. When the child is born, she's in a fantastic world or he doesn't matter. The good enough mother frustrates him. But there's a point where he can, like my daughter, Lila, she's seven years old. So when she's playing with dolls, she knows they're dolls, but she also thinks they're real, she can hold reality and fantasy, right? One leg here, one leg here. That's called potential state. When we grow older, that's where we experience love, awe, awe, wonder. For a lot of us, we lose that potential state. And you have to, like as a therapist, I have to spray play in the clinic because play is what allows me to not take myself too seriously. And if our relationship is dead serious, then it's going to be very hard for me to show you my shadow. So first I need to, I need to spritz a lot of play and to squirt a lot of oil. I have to oil us up, oil the space. So there's places for mistakes. When you say play, but I'm just wondering exactly what do you mean? How do you do that? How would right. you okay. get a practical so example? Here's, here's a practical example, okay? So here, for instance, something we teach our couples, it's called take two, okay? So right in movies, you do a take and worst case, you, you do another take. 
So if we adopt a playful attitude and, and play, by the way, I have, a, I have a very long history in, in theater improvisation. So I'm also a couple of family therapists, but I'm also an improv teacher that my PhD is improv and therapy. That's where I combined it. But one of the rules wow. of improvisation, which is the art of play, by the way, is that there are no mistakes. They're only learning. When you're improvising on stage, there are no mistakes. So I call you Fred instead of Jim. We work with that. That becomes a playful, like, you know, nice. I forgot you. I, right. I, I called you mom, but you're actually my aunt. Well, that's just part of the scene. You make it work. So when you're in a playful space in your relationship, there's a, you're less afraid of mistakes. So for instance, what happens, we call this a take two. So I came home. Um, you were, I came two hours late and you were like, where were you at sale? And I get all defensive and I yell at you. Okay. And the, the, and it's a, it just becomes a snowball. It's negative snowball. Okay. So when we have play, I can say to you, you know, Rivka, let's do a take two, take two. And then basically kind of we rewind it back. And sometimes I'll even leave the house and come back in and say, and basically that's me and my partner saying, we're both going to suspend reality. We're stepping into potential state. And for the sake of our relationship, we're going to rewind it. Now, if you think about it, that's, that's really playful. Like, that's not a serious thing to do. That's, that's playful. Right. Mm -hmm. But if I'm, if, if, because when I am playful, by the way, there's lots of books written about play because play is where animals um, learn. We learn when we, through play. Play also signals to my partner, I'm not coming at war. Like also animals, when they want to play, they're basically saying, I'm not, I'm not here to fight you. I'm here to play. So when I'm playful with my partner, I'm basically saying to Galit, my wife, I'm saying, listen, I don't want to have a fight tonight. I'm sorry. I, I messed up. I got defensive. So let's do a take two. Now that requires both of us to be playful enough to rewind and to start that, start that interaction again. I like that. Let's take a take two. That's a nice one. Right. But both actually, people, both right. people have what? to be on board. Exactly. Right. Like, does it take two? Oh, well, there's a pun. Does it take two to take two? I mean, I, it's obviously a muscle. Now, I have to admit, like, I grew up in a very depressed household, so there was no play when I grew up. So it's just something, I mean, you know, you teach what you need to learn. Oh, yeah. So I took 20 yeah. years of improv because it was clear to me that I needed to learn how to play. It doesn't come naturally to me. Now, if I, if I taught myself, I can teach others. So it's a muscle that you need to learn. And it's really hard also for women, because for women, by the way, there's a whole book, Why Do Adult Women Stop Playing? Because you reach an age when playing either becomes not modest or becomes silly and immature. And boys, very early on, we lose play, we turn into game, football, soccer, swimming, everything's a competition. So a lot of adults, we lost the ability to play. And we go very serious and everything becomes serious. And then we wonder why we're burnt out, cynical, exhausted rigid, unimaginative. So it does take two, but if the more I can work on the muscle of play, the less I'll, I'll so I'll say take two and Galit will say, screw you. I'm not going to take two. If I can hold on to myself and, and keep that playfulness, then, then we might not have a take two, but at least it's not going to go into like a world war now between both of us. Well, it might, because if she responded like that, you'd be like, I tried to be playful and you didn't go along with me. You know, it could, okay. it could spiral. Like, okay, okay, okay. Don't shoot the message. Like, I can remain playful, right? I can still hold on. Like, you're right. I'm not always playful. God knows I'm not always playful. But I know that it's a muscle that I, that I work long. I mean, if you think about it, play, and we do, we do webinars. We teach couples. We do have a whole webinar about play for couples because... The more play, the beauty of play, by the way, is A, makes the good times even better. It helps mm -hmm. fights end faster because it's enough that I say take two. Right. And if Galit's on a good day, I, I, I leave the house, I come back in, boom, the evenings, we're in a completely different trajectory. And that was like with one, one we call this a repair attempt. A repair attempt, like Godman's research, research on couples therapy basically says the happy couples 
fight just as much as the unhappy couple. The difference is, there's two differences. One, the ratio of yeses to no, of positive interactions to negative ones is five to one. Five yeses to every no. Five positive interactions to every negative one. That's one. We'll talk about that maybe a little later. And the other one's repair attempts. The happy couples are initiating repair attempts, are trying to stop the snowball. Whereas unhappy couple, they're just, oh, whatever. Screw you, screw you, slam the door, see you sleeping on the couch. Right, so, so the happy couples it, maybe recognize that it takes a bit of work and effort. Yeah. And, and when I do a take two, that's me saying to you, this is the good part of me, I say, trying to come to the mature part of you saying, hey, we don't need to fight about this. Right. I love you. I don't want to have a, I, I want us to work. I'm signaling to Galit, I'm not coming at war here. I'm, 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 I come in peace. You have another example of play. One more. Yeah. So another example of play that we teach all couples, we call this secret service. And basically, this is going to sound really ridiculous, but you kind of, you know how you have the secret service that you kind of talk to the, you have like a little, uh, I don't know how you call that. You know, what do you call that? Like, talking to your yeah, yeah. walkie-talkie. Like, pocket like, a microphone. Microphone, like a pocket microphone. And basically what we do is we teach couples to talk when they're feeling stuff or when they're thinking stuff and they want, and they feel like it's getting tense. So what they do is they kind of talk to their wrist, imagining they're talking to an imaginary bodyguard or secret service. And basically what they're doing is they're just verbalizing what's happening inside of them. Now, here's the beauty of this, right? So for instance, um, for instance, let's say we're at dinner and the kids are starting to annoy me and I'm starting to lose my play. Okay. Or I'm, I'm, an, I'm having dinner with my wife. So what I'll do is I'll start talking to myself, but loud enough that Galit can hear. God, I'm really getting ticked off right now, you know. Galit said it was, I mean, Galit said she's gonna do the dishes, and I see that I'm gonna to have to do the dishes again. And it's, I feel like it's unfair, and there's a part of me that just wants to go, but I realize that's not gonna help. Now, now what's the beauty of talking to yourself out loud? Is because it's letting Galit see what's happening inside of me without her needing to get defensive or reactive. And the fact that I'm talking to my wrist is so ridiculous. <laughs> Right. So it's it's basically signaling to Galid, like, listen, I just want you to know what's happening inside of me. And I'm reminding you, intimacy, if you play around with the words, is into me see, letting her see what's happening inside of me. So when I talk to the Secret Service, I'm basically pulling the curtain, like Galid, my wife always says, I'm pulling the curtain. I'm starting to, here's the backdrop. Here's what's happening to me. But the beauty of it is she doesn't have to react to that. I'm, t- I'm talking to myself, but she could hear that. And the second I do this, the second you start talking to your wrist, it's really hard to take you seriously. So you're lowering the chances of getting flooded, you or your partner. Because at the end of the day, the biggest enemy of relationships when you're triggered is being flooded. And the second I'm flooded, I lose brain to my prefrontal cortex. And I'm basically working with my reptilian brain. And when I'm with my reptilian brain, it's fight or flight, freeze or fawn. And there's nothing, nothing's good kind of going to come out of that. So when you play, say being flooded, what do you mean? Like being flooded? Being flooded by- with I'm getting triggered, I'm getting really, really angry or panicky. Okay, each one of us has a different kind of, we call this flooding, which basically means the blood stops rushing to my front brain, every adrenaline pumps, my, my limbs get tense, okay? My jaw usually gets locked, my back. Each one of us has different symptoms. But basically what that means, I'm in survival mode, okay? We also call this trauma mind. So when I'm in survival mode, which is, by the way, it's a, it's a great evolutionary tool to help us survive. Because once, if there's a lion coming at me, Boom, I get flooded, I get up and I run, right? Great. Now, here's the thing about flooding, which is really interesting. Um, we have mirror neurons, right? So we're, we're, we're hardwired for connection. 
Now that's beautiful. And it was great evolutionary because when we, when, when, if we're sitting next to each other and a lion comes to eat both of us, but Rivka, you can't see it. I can see it. I flood within two seconds. You're going to flood because I'm flooded. That's called emotional contagion. Okay. Which is great. And then we both get up and run, but fast forward a couple million years. Now, when I get flooded within seconds, you're going to get flooded. And then we're both going to fight and argue, yell, Okay. Right. Or the classic example with our children, our children don't have a frontal cortex fully developed. So of course they're going to be flooding. You know, half the time they're flooded because they have, they don't have the, the frontal brain yet. So my job as a parent is to make sure I don't get flooded. So play helps me get less flooded. Why? Because it requires both my, my lower brain and my upper brain. Why? Because humor and perspective taking is part of the frontal cortex. So what you're saying is as soon as you feel that flooding feeling coming on, pause and play. If you're in a good day, first of all, pause. <laughs> pause and take a time out. If you're feeling, if you have a good day, bust out, you know, bust out the secret service, ask for a take two, start singing, doing anything, get up, walk around, have a glass of water, do some exercise. I mean, I'm, I'm kind of taking, I'm, I'm zooming out just from play, but I'm just saying play, right. the beauty of play, by the way, it also, it also, it balances out between the right and left brain. Right brain is very associative, emotional, left brain is very cognitive. So play, what I love about play, it, it prevents me on one hand from being flooded emotionally because play helps me perspective. Okay. If I'm doing this, if I'm talking to my wrist, I'm not, I'm not completely flooded, you know, because I know this is, this is not survival mode. This is being playful and play also helps me going through too cerebral and rigid. Because play basically means I'm not taking myself too seriously. This isn't life or death. And most of our arguments, I'd say 95% of couples' arguments are not life and death. Right? And, it, and play helps, helps me in balance. It balances my upper and lower brain, my right and left hemisphere. Keeps me on one hand soft and flexible. I'm more open for feedback. I signal to my partner. I come at peace. I mean, you could talk about play for the whole web, uh, podcast. Yeah. But what, what I know. And now, can, last... can we can we have more tools on play? <laughs> no. Yeah. Well, I, I want to say. Wait, wait, let me just say one thing about play, and and and, and then we'll continue. <laughs> yeah, because we have more of the model. But what I wanted to say about play was a book called Play. Uh, Doctor Stuart Brown. He basically he says this great quote: "The opposite of play is not work the, or seriousness. The opposite of play is depression." When you wow. don't have play, you are going to sink. Let's just say wow. that again. The opposite of play is depression. That is huge. And I think for me, I didn't realize that. I just wanted to go, I, you know, growing up in a depressed household, I just wanted to improvise. I, I felt like I needed to do improv. It only took, it took me another 20 years to realize why I wanted that so bad. Because there was a part of me that needed, I needed to teach myself play. I needed to climb out of the depressed hole where I grew up in and to find play. And, and that's, I'm going back. This is, this is all started because we're talking about the model. The basis for our model is play. If a couple cannot play, it's going to be very hard for them to get remarried. It's going to be very hard for them to change and grow because everything is life and death. They're too much in the game, but not enough in the play. Right. So I have a question you mentioned earlier, emotional contagion and how we often will mirror each other. And I feel like sometimes, you know, if you go into a room and you're amongst a group of people and one person is like a Debbie Downer or has negative energy, or it's just kind of, let's say, pessimistic. I feel like people pick up on that. Like that definitely impacts the energy in the room. So in a relationship, when you have one person who is less willing to play or one person who is more negative or maybe unwilling to put in the work, 
is that a sustainable way to grow a relationship? Like if one person is, let's say, more committed to change than the other, can one person change enough to change the whole situation? If or do they so have the to great, want to do it also? So it takes it takes one to get angry. It takes two to have a fight. Right. So I can always control my behavior. A fight will not happen if I don't step into the fight. So for me, play is not just that we're all, we'll be happy and hug at the end of the evening. Play means that I don't get flooded. The, the ideal is to get flooded as least as possible. Because when we're flooded, we're baboons. We're animals. I'm not using my full brain, my full potential. Okay, that's, that's the goal. Also in parental guidance, we work with parents. Like That's our goal, not to get flooded. We all know that we've all been there. You know, I've been there tonight. Like I flood, that's, that's basically what I'm trying to wrestle with. And I know that when I have reservoirs of play, and I don't always have when I'm tired, when I'm hungry, when I'm cranky, when I'm stressed, I will tell my kids, like, as I come home, Abba, daddy does not have play. So back off. Like, don't mess with me tonight. I don't have any play. Like, I don't have that to give you. I don't. And I think that's okay. So if I'm playful and my wife isn't, and that happens, or deletes playful and I'm not, then we try not to get um, contaminated in that sense. So I, she might say to me, so we have a code word. We call this red. You know the movie Inside Out? It was yeah, characters yeah. inside Riley's brain. So it's red, right? a good one. So we taught this to the kids. We say red. So when I'm in red, basically means I'm flooded. And we taught this to the kids. And now we help identify also to ourselves, but also each other when someone's red. And we even developed a funny code word. We call it flavor. I don't know how we say flavor when some when it's, when I say to you Rivka flavor that means you're flooded. It looks like you're flooded. And the second the kids say that to me, I take a second and say, "Wait, is that true?" Yes, it is. Right. Sorry, I'm going to take a five. I'm going to take a timeout because oftentimes that's even taking a timeout requires play because that because when you're not in play, you're like, "No, we're going to talk about this now." And here I'm going to give a punishment and I'm going to slam the you know. The, there's no delay of satisfaction of gratification. Like you're just reactive. You are in fight or flight or freeze or fawn. So those are automatic behaviors. So going back to your question, yes, you might not be able to get your partner to be playful, but you'll make sure that you won't flood. Because when you flood, bad things happen. Two partners flooding, that's when we have arguments, yelling, cursing, hurting each other, violence, abuse. I'm going to the extreme cases, but that's when we say the things we regret. We talk about your mom. We talk about how bad you are in something. We go personal. We jab you. I I go passive aggressive. I you know I'm nasty when I'm not in, when I'm flooded. So all of that was a basis. We haven't even yeah. like, that's a basis yeah. for our model. Okay. Should, should we take it? Should we yes. take it to the we next? We can take element? that basis. Yes. Let's take it to the seven year itch. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> you know, because there, there's often there often comes a point in a marriage after a few years, a few kids where couples feel like the spark they once had is lost and they feel stuck in the relationship. So do you have I'm wondering if this play comes into play or some tips if yeah, if this is our model for the seven year itch, is it is the play the model for everything? So wait, so the play is just the basis for the model. But the seven-year itch, let's let's reframe that. Thank you so much for bringing that. I never actually brought that together. The seven-year itch could basically be the end of your first marriage. Yes. And for most partners, they don't realize, oh, great. It's good that it, it's about time. We, we've been waiting for this. It's been seven years. Now we're parents. Physically, um, you, your bodies have changed. Our interests have changed. My libido has changed. Yeah, this is a great time to renegotiate the marriage. So play is not enough. The next thing in our model is the Jungian concept of all the parts you you project on others, you you deny. I don't have that, okay? So we all have a shadow. Some of them are cultural. Some of them are gendered. 
I'm, I'm making huge generalizations, but usually what I'll meet in the clinic for women, usually the shadow is their aggression and hostility. For men, it's usually our vulnerability, okay? Or our, 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 our feeling of loneliness, okay? So we don't bring those to the front. So when I point fingers, I love what you said that before, Ida, right? When I point a finger at you, three fingers are pointing back at me. That is where we work. That is your shadow. So when we work with couples, the first thing after we after we we lube you up with play, okay, let's see your shadow. Okay, let's see what you're not talking about. And we all have that. And every relationship has a shadow. There's a power dynamic that nobody wants to talk about. And that's what we kind of float up for them. Okay, so you're not just a victim in your marriage. You're not just the martyr. No, you, you also have aggressive parts. You also belittle your partner like we all do. That's called normal marital sadism. Because the opposite of love is indifference, right? So if I love you, sometimes I hate you. Because I care so much about you. I'm so dependent on you, right? So love and hate. So I'm always going to hurt the ones I love. Because sometimes I love you and sometimes you drive me crazy, right? So for a lot of people, especially women, they don't, want, they don't own their aggression. They don't own their normal marital sadism. And that leaves them in, cast as either a victim or a martyr in their own marriages. And then that makes, that creates a dichotomous victim persecutor. Or as I call, like to say, the intimacy queen and the emotionally handicapped partner, right? And that just seems normal to everyone. And, and for me, that's crazy. And I'm trying to fight that. But we have to realize that's, that's, so, that's psychological patriarchy. That's how we train our, that's how we kind of educate and socialize our boys and girls. And Galit, you know, is a gender PhD and, you know, hopefully we'll have a conversation with her. She can, she's more eloquent about that. But like, that's where we need to start fighting that. And how do we do tikkun ulam? How do we change the world one couple at a time? So going back to the couple, so I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna lube up the, the partner. I'm gonna say, okay, we're playful now, but let's talk about your aggression. How do you stick it to your partner? What? How do you punish him? I always say the word punish, and they're, they're like, what? I never punish. Of course you do. We all punish, and that's where I have to be playful and say, I also belittle my wife. So does Galit. I'm reminding you. Oftentimes, it's me and Galit in the room. So we're talking about our own marriage next to the next to the couple because we're trying to normalize that. Because there's so much shame, and especially I, I'll never forget this. Like it was nine years ago, I was doing this session with this couple, and I said to the woman, "How do you punish your husband? You're obviously unhappy in your marriage. How do you punish him? I never punish. How do you punish? I never punish him. I just want him to be good. I don't know. Okay, okay. So I'm playful. I'm smiling, and it's okay because I, I'm always going to be the most crazy, the most rude, the most extreme person in the room. Why? To normalize that nothing will shock me. I won't judge you. But that's the work I did. And also, I know that I'm jealous, that I'm angry, that I'm selfish. So when you when you share that with me, I'll be like, of course, I know that. Because you're human. Because we're all human, right? Because we have everything. Anyways, back to this woman. Am I talking too fast or is this okay? No, you're good. You're good. Okay. So I go I go to this woman and say, okay, so how do you punish your husband? So finally she says, well, you know. And then she has this little, like... Like she's confessing, like she, you know, like this, 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 this horrible thing. She's like, sometimes when I finish driving the car, I don't push the seat back. I leave the seat really close to the wheel. So when my husband steps into the car, he bumps his head on the front, on the windows. Oh my God. <laughs> and for her, that was, that was like a micro owning her shit, right? That was a micro moment of owning her shadow. But that liberates her because the fastest way to step out of the victim mentality, and I see this all the time with women, especially with women, is to own your aggression. Now, the second she can own that, what's happening, we're balancing the field. She's not a martyr, and he's not the villain. There are two humans that also have strong points and also have shadows. Mm -hmm. And I'm going back to what we said in the beginning of the talk, right? If she really wants to be loved, she has to own that shadow. 
Now here's the here's the funny or here's the not surprising. Your partner knows it, feels it anyways. It's just owning it. Because inside your shadow is the superpower for your next evolution. Inside your aggression is your assertiveness. Inside your jealousy is the map for your next evolution. Okay. Because every, no. it's, a, it, it, it's true because every bad part of us has a counter good part of us. So it's like taking that and making it, turning it into the good part. And, 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 and yes, and as we say, the improv, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to build on what you're saying. I'm reminding you there are no bad parts. All of our parts are good. We need all of them. It's society or the socialization that we went that said that is bad. Jealousy is bad. Aggression is bad, right? Modesty is good, right? Altruism is good. It's also good. They're all good. We need all of them. But this is the thing. We're, we're round humans. But what's the problem? When we don't bring all of our, all of our sides, we're going back to self-presentation. So if I'm only going to bring you a very narrow aspect, so is one am, second is a better word for it, the worst. So not bad, like the worst part of us. Like if we're being aggressive, if we're being jealous, that's not a good thing. Jealousy is also helpful. Jealousy is also important to have. A because we all feel it. Let's stop denying it. Let's stop repressing it. We need to come out. Jealousy, my dear, is also a map. Is a map to what you want. Right. I am jealous when people publish a book. I'm not jealous when somebody buys a new car. I don't care about cars. I care about writing a book. That is my goal now. So when I get jealous of someone, I'm like, okay, wow, what's happening there? What do they have that I want? Not because I want them to not have it. Like, oh, that's great. But if I wouldn't be connected to my jealousy, I would be losing that map. I want, I want to talk about, je- I want to talk yeah. about jealousy. Okay. Time. Okay. <laughs> So if I'm jealous, not because you have it, not because you have it, because a friend of yours has it, right? Asking for a friend. Exactly. (laughs) So so if I'm feeling jealous and then I I also have this aggression that I haven't expressed, should I channel that jealousy? Use the aggression there? Like I, you know, tap into that power. Like how do I, how do I navigate jealousy? Like in a, in a situation? Yeah. So, so, so first of all, okay. So, so let's talk about this for a second. Okay. Um, you're we're feeling it all the time. We're just not owning it. But the first part is owning it with yourself is to say, yes, jealousy is okay. I'm sometimes jealous. It's okay. I'm jealous. And like, I'll give an example about a year ago, a really good friend of mine published a book and he came over and, and, and he said, you know, I published a book and he, and he showed me the copy. He didn't even give it to me. <laughs> and I said to him, I am so happy for you. And I'm so jealous of you. Now this, we have this, you know, we say, there's a saying, name it to tame it. You've got to name the jealousy so you can tame it. When you don't, you do what our children do, which is called acting out. You're gonna, it's going to, feelings or energy, it's going to spill out of you. If you're jealous, if I was jealous of him and I didn't verbalize it, it would act out. I would be a little bit sarcastic or snabby, or I'd even say like, I'd belittle his book, right? I'd find, it, it would spill out of me. So what I'm saying to him, I'm also jealous. I am. Do you have to say it to him or could you say it out loud to yourself? Well, you start with saying it out loud, but if you want to build an intimate open, if you want to remarry your partner, if you want to have visceral, exciting relationships, that then you own it. And then what happens, you create a culture where you're, and here's another, I just want to say something like, um, so we have a YouTube channel with over 125 videos and like each one of these ideas is a video, so we can refer to them later. But what I wanted to say, like, there's another concept called your faults are welcome here. You want to build a relationship where you, where the more faults you show, the more loved you'll be. And I want to give an example. So uh, in our first marriage, I'm, I'm in my third marriage to my first wife. That's Galit. so great. Hopefully, Love it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so hopefully you'll meet her. Hopefully we'll meet her and we'll have this conversation. But so in our first marriage, I, I would kind of position her as the angry one. 
because I grew up in a depressed household and she's very passionate. I said, why are you angry? Why are you angry? Why are you angry? Like semi quasi gaslighting her next to the kids as the angry one. And she kept calling me on it. She's like, why, why do you say I'm angry? I'm just passionate. This is called being alive, Estelle. Hello. <laughs> Proportion. I am alive. I am not depressed. I have energy. I have feelings. I am, I'm a hot-blooded woman. I'm healthy. And then about, it was just three years ago, three years ago or two years ago, we were eating dinner and I do it again. And then she's like, Estelle, you're doing this again. And then I took a breath and I said, Galit, you're right. You're right. I've been labeling you as the angry one for years. Next to the kids, by the way, this is all, this is all happening live. And then Galit looks at me, she starts laughing. And that only took us nine years, right? And that's called, that's your fault. You're welcome here. That's freedom. Freedom is I can bring my worst and my partner will give you a big hug and say, thank you for owning that. It doesn't mean that it's, it's okay and you don't have to work on it, but thank you for owning that. And that makes me feel so free because I'm going back to improv. One of the rules of improvisation is make your partner look good. So if we're doing a scene on stage, I want to make sure you look good. How do I do that? By saying yes, by not blocking you, et cetera, et cetera. So when we're in this relationship using this model, I'm like, thank you for saying you're also jealous of me. Thank you so much because A, I felt it. And B, that means you trust me enough. They're going to say that. And that, that, that brings people together into me. See, when I show you, that's called self, it's called a self-exposure. When you move from self-presentation to self-exposure, we're basically showing our soft underbelly. And if that's not if that doesn't build intimacy, if that doesn't bring people together, if if your partner, and I want to say, here's a caveat, if you keep bringing more and more of your vulnerability and your partner doesn't meet you there, that's a really good sign that you don't have another marriage with that person. Because that's the question we want to ask ourselves. Do we have another marriage with this person? And I always tell couples, life is short. Let's find out. Let's find out. You could be closeted and have the same marriage for 40 years, but you're going to, be, you're, you're going to slowly just bring this self-presentation. You're being a very narrow part of yourself. Because if you're an altruistic martyr in your in your marriage, all you're going to be getting from your partner is the reciprocal role of that, which is going to be either the selfish or the victim. Right. Right. So if by you, let's say, for example, when you said that to your wife and you keep doing that kind of thing, you would hope that she would do the same thing back to you. And if she doesn't, that's when you're saying if she doesn't do that, you can start considering like, hey, I don't know if I'm going to be able to remarry this person because she's not reciprocating. Yeah, if, if my partner doesn't, then yeah. But because here's the thing is, I'll, I said a couple of, the reason you're not divorcing your partner is because you deep down inside, you know, you haven't done the work. And if you divorce him now and you don't do the work, you're going to replicate this in your next, with your next partner. And I know people that have been married three times, but they're basically in the same marriage. Just, they just, it's from Tim to Bob to Jim. It's the same, it's the same dynamic. She's still the martyr in all three of her marriages, right? So, so basically what we're doing is we're, we're raising the bar. We're creating a culture. Well, that is the norm. Can I just ask you something? How, what made you realize that your wife was, instead of looking at her as angry, that she actually might just be passionate? What was it that clicked in your brain? I think she said it enough times and there was a part of me that knew it. And she's also right because she knows me. Like she knows where I grew up. She knows that I have a problem. I'm more of a turtle. When it comes to conflict, there's two types of people. There's turtles and thunderstorms. Thunderstorms are like rah, from zero to hundred in seconds. And then from 100 to zero in minutes. And turtles just go into our shell and we hold it all in. I'm a turtle. I don't know how to fight. I don't know how to get angry. Like, I'll explode, but I'll, I'll first, I'll bottle it up for a long, long time. So this is me and Galid talking about this with a lot of play. She, she, and she would also say, she, she wouldn't be like, I said, I'll stop telling that I'm angry. She'd be like, look, what's happening? I'm passionate. It was a, she, was, she wasn't judging me for that. She was patient and she was playful. 
and play is the antidote for shame because she's basically saying it's okay. And, and you need to realize like this took a lot. This was like water on a rock. It took me a long time. But because we had a culture, because here's the thing, right? Like there, in improv, there are no mistakes. So worst case, I can say something and that can change my mind. So I was trying it out. It wasn't like a, the deepest confession, like, oh, it was like, I tried owning it. We call this broadcasting live. When I don't really know what's going to happen. I'm just going to say it. I'm going to see what's going to happen because there are no mistakes because I can always do a take two. So I think for me, it was her being playful, her being confident who she is, her holding on to herself. And that's, that thing is called differentiation. My ability to be connected to myself and to be in intimacy with somebody else. That is called differentiation. That is an ability that is a muscle that we inherit from our parents and we attract people with similar abilities. Differentiation. We'll talk about that. That's another video. Never mind. But so, yeah. So because Galit was differentiated, she could hold on to herself and she knew, she knew that it was passion. She's also angry sometimes, but she's not an angry person. She's a passionate person. So she knew she was very confident. And then she just, she just held on to herself. It just took time and a lot of play and modeling. Here's another great Galit story. So kids are finally in bed. We're about to watch something on TV. I asked Galit to, uh, Galit's going to grab a glass of water. I'm like, Galit, can you, can you get me one too? I'm going to go, I go to the bathroom. I come back. There's only one glass of water. And I'm all, I'm like, okay, here we go. Warming <laughs> up my engines, revving it up. And then I look at her, I say, Galit, like, why didn't you get me a glass of water? And then she looks me straight in the eye and she says, cause I'm selfish and I'm lazy. Boom, <laughs> boom, boom, mic drop. And I just stood there like your face right now. I was like, and I just started laughing. And I, and I gave her a big hug and kiss. And I got myself a glass of water. This reminds me of this quote, don't make a, a permanent decision based on a temporary emotion. Like it's so hard when you're in that space where you just want to lash out to be like, okay, I'm going to revert now to play because I know that's the right thing to do. It's like so much easier said than done. But just think about that. Like in, with that one sentence, that, that whole evening was, was, was yes. saved. I was so appreciative of her in self-exposure broadcasting live. And she so, wasn't yeah. taking herself so seriously. She was able to yeah. say it. And she knew that I'm going to, because we have a culture of play, that I'm not going to go, ah, ah, you're so selfish. Ah, blah, 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 speech, speech, speech. Yeah, Can I just bring up something? Like what happens if your values are different with time? Like there's one thing where you change, but if your values are really different. And I think, have, I think that... Values, you mean like religious outlook? Yeah, let's say religious values. Yeah, yeah let's say your, yeah, your values sure. change with time. Yeah. What? yeah, I have that a lot. I have that a lot. Religious couples, one of the, one of the partners doesn't want to be religious anymore. So what? how right. does play come and, and uh, owning your, owning your like if you're owning that your values are different, what do you do with that? Well, the first thing, come out with it. Let's talk about it. Let's stop hiding it. Let's talk. A lot of us, because we don't want to be hurt or we don't want to hurt other people, we go vague. We, we call this fuzzy communicating. I'm not sure. It's complicated. I'll get back to you. Uh, I don't know. <laughs> right. And basically we're, we're prolonging. We're, we're, we're stepping. That's, that's stepping out of the crucible. And then actually it's get, it gets even worse. I rather like, let's go to the crucible and let's say it. I don't want to be religious anymore. Or I do want to be religious. Or I want to move cities. And like, let's put that. Let's, that's called the T-junction. Couples need to reach that T-junction in order to discover who they are. That's called, right? Integrity is making those tough decisions and have the tough conversations. But a lot of partners don't want to have the tough conversations, either A, because they don't know how to fight or B, they have not, they don't have enough play and every fight becomes an explosion. And so we need to teach couples how to fight. I feel like that, that's a whole other talk. So we're not going to go into that, but like, 
But yes, yes, I want to talk about that. And that's why I will always be the craziest person in the room. And I'm just going to, we call this scaffolding in therapy. So what are you actually not saying to your wife? Is it that you don't want to be with her? Is that you want to be with other women? Is it because you're gay? Is it like, I give them the most extreme options to normalize that anything you say is legit. And I rather you say it and it hurts and it burns than you making it fuzzy. And, and I want to use that as a segue to the other part of the model, the next part, because it's a beautiful segue. And then we come back to that. The next part of the model, after you have play and you own your shit, is to let it land. Let it land. That comes from improv once again. And it's the idea of letting what your partner says into your body, down your throat, burn your chest. Do not sit in your stomach. You want to run. You want to scream. You want to get defensive, but you let it land. Because only after I can develop the muscle of letting things land, then I can actually change. Why? Because our body oftentimes is wiser than our mind. Our mind wants to block off anything that doesn't feel good to us. But our body has this knowledge. We also call this focusing. There's a whole school of therapy called focusing, which basically you trust your body. Your body gives you that felt sense. We also call that intuition sometimes, right? So by letting it land, I'm basically creating a culture where when you say something to me, I'm actually going to listen to it. I'm going to see because oftentimes there's a grain of truth in what you're telling me. And if I let it land, I will actually grow because who, who better than you can see all my shadows. You live with me. You've seen me at my worst. Okay. But a lot of times we're scared because we think that if I listen to you, that means I agree with you. No. Letting it land doesn't mean I agree with you. It doesn't mean I'm automatically wrong. It just means I'm letting what you're saying in and you're being touched. Back to that research. The research shows that when couples, they call it accepting influence, especially men. When men can accept influence from their wives, the marriage is happier. But it's also women have, find it hard to really listen to their partner and really what he says, especially when it comes to parenting. Yeah, yeah, sure. Thanks, Fred. Thanks for those tips. Yeah, go back to work. I'll take care of the parenting, right? But, but oftentimes, there's wisdom there. But if you don't let it land, then why would your partner listen to you? So back to what you're saying. So yeah, let's have that tough conversation. And then you actually want to move, okay? So for instance, let's bring it back to Gilead. We were living in Jerusalem happily for years. Um, both our parents in Jerusalem. I lived there most of my life. And then Gilead said, I want to move. And she, and in the beginning was playable. And then slowly, slowly, she said, I don't want to stay in Jerusalem anymore. I'm done. I want, I want to evolve. I want to see what our next evolution is. And I feel that we can't do it in Jerusalem. So we had to face that T-junction. And if she wouldn't, or if I wouldn't let that land, if I would keep ignoring it and say, no, no, not now. We'll talk about it later. We'll talk about it. I knew because as a couple of therapists, I knew that I was, I was, we were going to, we're going to be in big, big trouble in five years from now. She'd hit 45. She'd turn around and say, because of you. And then, and then we see, I see it all the time in the clinic, the 40 year old woman saying, because of you, I've never complete, complete the sentence. Right. And then the right. partner becomes the jailer and then she becomes the martyr. And then that's just a. Okay. So using that example where you obviously you ended up moving, you're not living in Jerusalem, but maybe sure. you'd have some resentment that you had to leave Jerusalem. Like, do, do you feel like you gave up something? You know what I'm so saying? So for me, yeah, yeah I, I, listen, Terry Real says is, is, is what you have worth mourning what you don't have with this partner, right? So, so like for me, it was like, yeah, my parents in Jerusalem and I'm the, my brother lives in the state. So I knew for me, it was leaving my parents. That was the big hard one for me. But it was clear to me that when I, when I kind of did the gains and losses, it was clear to me that the gains are much more than the losses. But you're for, saying but, in either like situation, there's going to be a loss. So in which one is the loss more, you know, going to impact you negatively? Right. 
if I contempt is the relationship killer, just research showed that contempt is like, that's it. It's just a matter of time. Right. So it was clear to me if I would have known that moving to Kfal Saba would mean I'd be contentful of Galit, I wouldn't have done the move. But it was also clear to me that if I don't, I, I, I felt somewhere that she would start having contempt for me. And I also knew deep down inside, it was my fear of change. And it's me being a loyal son and being scared of change. And I'm an improviser for God's sake, but I'm so scared of change. And that's the truth. Right. Interesting. So for me, it was clear that if I want to involve and if I want to remarry this woman, and I have to say that that was one of the best moves I've done in my life. Like I am married to a completely new woman. I mean, I'm not the same person. It's thanks to her. It's thanks to us. It's thanks to all of us. But like, she had the courage to say, it's time to go. I know where I'm going to be in 20 years. I don't want that. I want to shuffle the cards. I want to, I want to, I want to try something new. Thank God. Thank God I listened to it. But it's not, it's not thank God. It's, it's being a couples therapist and seeing when couples don't do that. I got to learn what not to do by seeing, you know, I've been doing this for 13 years. That's, that's hundreds of couples that I've seen at their worst and at their best. So we have let it land. And once again, that is a muscle. It's an ability. I'll just show you a little something. In my clinic, I have wasabi peas, spicy peas. Why do I have spicy peas? Because when I try to teach couples how to let it land, I tell them, open up, take a handful of wasabi peas. Oh my God. Put them in your mouth. <laughs> put them in your mouth. Now tell your, now I tell the partner, now tell him something that's on your mind that he's not going to like here. And then she says it, and then he ch- and then he, he swallows the wasabi peer, and it burns in his chest. That's the closest I can get to stimulate to simulate how it feels to let it land. And now, when Galit needs to say to me something rough, I will say to her one second. I'll ground myself, then she'll say it, and I'll want to burn and yell or get defensive. And I have learned how to let it land. And oftentimes, I don't need to even do anything. It's just about her sharing her pain. Because if I'm in a relationship, because a lot of partners have this core belief that your pain is my responsibility. Your pain is my fault or your pain is my to-do list. And when you have that core belief, you don't want to hear your partner's pain. But if you learn to let it land, you can cut, cut that symbiotic umbilical cord. And I can actually start hearing your pain without me getting defensive or reactive. Differentiation could also be seen as being close without being reactive. So when Galit said to me, and you know, last night you weren't present with the kids, you weren't there at all. I was alone. I mean, you were there physically, but you had nothing to give. So she's saying it, and it's true. But if I wouldn't have let it land, I would have gotten defensive. Say, well, you weren't. You know, I don't know what you're talking about. And she was right. So by letting it land, I'm also modeling to her. I'm listening to you. And and she was right. And then I was like, oh. And then I felt that uncomfortable. That's called worthy guilt. Yeah, I was not present. It's true. And I want to feel that burn. I don't want to, like for a lot of us, we don't want to feel that burn. We don't like to feel what is called positive anxiety, which is being under, on the edge of your comfort zone, being stretched, being challenged. We don't want to feel that. And that is, again, we need to work on that. That is, again, a muscle. So we have play, then you let things land. And then finally, you reach the last stage, which is say the thing. Say the thing. This is another thing from improv. So if you're doing a scene and let's say my glasses fall off, I'm ex- a good improviser will say, oh, my glasses fell off. They won't ignore what just happened. You say what's happening right now on stage. In psychotherapy, we call this immediacy skills, talking about the here and now. What I'll call it is broadcasting live, clear, one-dimensional communication. Not to make, make it very simple and blunt. How curious are you about your partner from one to 10 and you can't say five? Boom. Ah! 
positive anxiety. Ah, here, yes. For instance, yeah, you really disappointed me. I said that you weren't present tonight with the kids. You said you would and you weren't. That is saying the thing. It's not beating around the bush. It's just saying it playfully. But you can only do that. So how do you say that? Like her just saying it just like that without she just said just well, like listen, that. Wait, but wait, that's the last part of the model. First, you have to be playful. Mm-hmm. Then you have to own your sh- Then you have to let it land. And only then can you say the thing. Because if, if I'm just like, you know, shooting at her all this criticism, but I'm not owning anything. I'm not letting anything land. That's not that's not differentiated. You know, that right. there's that scene in, in the Jim Carrey movie, Liar, Liar, where he stops lying and then he starts spitting out these truth bombs to everyone in this meeting. You know, you're stupid, you're ugly. Blah, blah, blah. And that, that's not differentiated. That's just being aggressive and mean. But yeah, we've worked hard enough so she can say to me, Esther, she didn't have to say, listen, I want to tell you a little, can I give you a little bit of feedback? No, dude, you weren't present. And, and, and because I could let it land, I didn't get defensive. I mean, listen, sometimes I do get defensive. I don't, I don't want there to be... An, the thing with couple therapists is you never meet their partner and they always, it always seems like you're perfect. And the first thing I want to say is all therapists are hypocrites. Like all parents are hypocrites. So let's just come out and just say it. Let's just name it. Okay. So I try, I try to minimize my hypocrisy by working with my wife, by telling stories about my marriage, by telling my clients stories about my marriage live. So they don't feel like they're messed up because if I'm altruist, if I'm the healer, if I'm Mr. Perfect, then, then they're never going to feel like they can change. And luckily, I, I'm in a profession that allows me to be an ego, ego, egotistical and altruist at the same time. The more I work on myself, the more I fulfill myself, the more I can help others. The more I own my shit, help others. Wow. I cracked it. That, that's, what, that's the aim, right? To be yeah. an egotistical and an altruist at the same time. Egoist and altruist at the same time. That's what we want to be doing. Edie, you said the quote, what was the quote that you had said in our last episode? That was it in a nutshell. This describes that. Work on yourself. Um, which one with the work on yourself and then share it with others. Oh, uh, if you want to change yourself, if you want to change the world, change yourself and then tell them how you did it. Yeah. I mean, That's I, great. yeah, I, I just, everything that you're sharing, I, I love the improv example because that really brings it home for me and kind of makes it real and we can't predict the future. So we are in essentially living in improv because I have no idea what's going to happen. So I should be doing that, but most of us are playing the game life, not really the play life. Exactly. When you bring, when you, when you bring the, my role as a therapist, educator, whatever, to bring play into the game. When you bring play into the game, that's when you get freedom. And a lot of us are not free in the game of marriage. We're not free in our careers. We hate Most of us hate our careers. We hate our marriage. Like parenting, like for me, if I'm owning my shit, the hardest place for me to be playful is in my parenting. I know that's, I have inherited very harsh core beliefs there. I'm trying to work on it. I'm owning it now. I've been aware of it for years. That is the hardest place for me to be playful. I have to work I'd be playful with my kids, which is ironic because kids, their mother, the mother tongue of all kids is play. Mm -hmm. That's their mother tongue. Not English, not Hebrew, not Spanish, not German. Okay. We need to learn their, we need to learn their language. It's clear to me. The more I come out, the more liberated I feel from being an imposter. So right now in this talk, I'm Dr. Romanelli, but the second, if I feel like I'm the best way, the best cure for imposter syndrome is owning your shit. And here I said it. Here, I'm struggling with my parenting. So now I don't have to pretend like I'm something perfect. And now I can go back to being Asael and not Dr. Romanelli, the famous whatever. Who cares? I want to live my life. So if I, if, this is what I realized. Like we spend most of our time at work. I want to live my life. So if you meet me tomorrow in the clinic, on stage, in the streets, or, or, you know, or teaching a workshop, you will see the same Asael. And I think that, that I'm thinking about my clinic, like through the years, the clinic has now entered my house. To come to see me, you have to come into my house, 
open the door, the dog will bark, kids are playing Xbox, you cross the kitchen, you cross the living room, you come into my clinic, you meet my wife. <laughs> like, it's all out there. Like, I am minimizing my hypocrisy. Like, this is it. This is real. Like, this is life. I'm not perfect. I'm just a couple steps ahead of you and I'm going to show you the way. Um, changed yourself and show them how you did it. And when I didn't change myself, I'm going to own it. I'm going to say, listen, there, I'm still working on it. I don't have a solution. Let's think about it together. What do you think? And that's the magic formula. It sounds like, because by allowing yourself to be seen, your client who's coming into your home is more likely to allow themselves to be seen, right? Is that like how it is? Like maybe you're creating that vibe where you're enabling the client to open up. Would you say like, is that what's happening by you kind of owning your stuff? So Carl Whitaker talks, he was a family therapist, and he said, therapists need to fight to be authentic. Okay. When I'm just the po- when I'm just a one a two-dimensional um healer or altruist or saint or tzaddik or whatever you want to call that, then all I'm going to be getting from my client is the victim, the, the the patient, the sick one, the crazy one. And then there's not going to be, there's not going to be, we call this self, he's not going to bring more parts of himself. Right. By me being authentic, I am forcing my clients to also be authentic. And that's the thing, right? The more I can bring, the more sides of myself I'm bringing to the room, to the encounter, to the marriage, the more I'm forcing, forcing to my partner to meet me there. Yeah. I actually heard from, I think it was a rabbi, actually. He said, you don't have to share your story in order to give over a message, in order to have an effect on somebody. I'm so glad you said that because I have a very good friend. That's how we met, right? Through Rabbi Israel Bernath. And, and, and basically, I always tell him that. You see, I think therapists and rabbis are in opposite positions because nobody wants to see your rabbi's shadow. You don't want to hear about your rabbi fighting with his wife or being a crappy parent. You want to believe that they're that they're great. Right. And I think and, and I think a lot of times, and I work a lot with rabbis in Israel and, and abroad, and they have a big imposter syndrome because where can they bring their shadows? Where? Nobody believes them. Nobody wants to hear them. Nobody wants to hear. When I own my clients are like, oh, great. Oh, yeah. He's real. But for rabbis, clergy, not just... Anyway, clergy, whatever, right? Nobody wants to see their shadow and they're locked. They're trapped in that facade. And I think that's why that, that's that's really, really hard. There's a big burnout, I believe, in clergy and in the healthy professionals in general, because all therapists are hypocrites, like all educators are hypocrites, like all parents are. We're all hypocrites. Let's just come out and say, let's have t-shirts and banners and let's just say it. It's okay. And it's okay that I don't I don't know anything. I don't know everything. It's okay. And I feel for me, it just allows me every time to step out of this imposter syndrome and come back to being myself. Because the last thing I want to be doing is feeling like I'm not myself. Because when am I going to be myself? Like, I I see this all the time. Like, when are you going to be yourself? When you come back home, when the kids go to bed, when your husband falls asleep, when you're just alone, then like, you want to be yourself as much as you can. And even in this talk, so very early on, I start being playful, a little bit blunt, testing the water. It's going to be playful here. I own my talk about my own parenting, my own marriage. I talk about Galit. I let what you said land. You asked me a question. I took a breath. I was like, okay, whoa. You, had, you asked me a question before I, I took a second for it to land. And then I allowed I mean, I interrupted you. <laughs> <laughs> no, you asked me a question. I don't know what it was. You asked me a question, Rivka, and I was like, whoa, I have to think about it for a second. Oh, I asked you what, how, I because I, I found that story unbelievable. I, I asked you how you recognize that your wife is passionate rather than angry. I didn't realize that she's been telling it for years. It's just, I just finally allowed that to land. That's the difference here. Thank you for circling back. I didn't realize that. I just let it, I finally owned it and let it land. Cause there's always a, there's a, there's a kernel of truth in what your partner said. 
It might be projection. It might be exaggeration, but there's, there's something there. Right. Otherwise it wouldn't trigger you. It was right. totally not, right. 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 Or, or, or it wouldn't be there for so long. Like there, there must be something there, but for that, I can't take myself too seriously. I, I can't also as a parent, also as a partner, also as a man, I need to be able to not take myself too seriously. I don't see partners anymore alone. I've stopped doing that. Interesting. I'm like, if you want to work, because for me, individual couples therapy and the way we do it, it's two for one. It's individual work next to your partner. You get two for one. You get to confront yourself, own your shit, and see whether your partner can roll with that and grow with you. But what so if should someone happen- be seeing an individual therapist and a couples therapist simultaneously? Like so when when I start seeing couples, I say to them, I'm I'm reaching a stage now, it only took me 13 years to feel confident to say, if you want to see me, you're gonna have to pause your individual therapy. And why? Because I want you to block your exits. What if one partner does not want to come? Like, can't you work with the individual to do the play and start start off and then, Great and then question. see how it goes? Great question. I have two answers for you. So one, what we will do is Galit, she works with women. She's a coach and she's a PhD in gender studies. You'll hopefully will interview as well. So she'll work with women individually. I won't work with men individually. Now, the reason we work with women individually, because a lot of times we've noticed, um, A, there's a need because not everyone wants to come together. And especially for women, they sometimes need to feel a bit more confident about their voice to step into the crucible. But here's where it goes. So obviously, let's talk about that because let, let's just let's just say it. Oftentimes, partners are happy for their partners to go to, to therapy. Two reasons. Why? Get off my back. Go talk to Beth. I just want to watch beer and watch the game. Get off my back. And two, this is usually when women want their husbands to go to individual therapy because that basically means you're the weakest link. What we call, you're the identified patient. In systemic therapy, they're the identified, they're the weakest, like they're the problem. In systemic therapy, there's always an IP. Either it's the kid that's stealing or lying or, you know, or fighting in school. And in couples therapy, there's usually one who's already cast as the problem. So by me, by him going to individual therapy, his wife is basically saying, yeah, you're the problem. Sort yourself out. And then he gets labeled. And of course he doesn't want to go. He's like, wait, it's not just me. But, you know, as we know, Intimacy has, since the feminist revolution in the 70s, feminist, like intimacy has become equals to talking. But masculine intimacy is silent. When two men are watching the game, they don't talk. That's how they spend time. Intimacy has kind of turned into a verbal operation, but it's not necessarily for many men. We're the most intimate when we're quiet, fishing, watching a game, you know, playing sports. The evolution of me as a therapist is like, I used to like psychodynamic therapy that's never ending. And now I'm realizing that the goal of therapy is for therapy to end. That is the goal of therapy. I'm trying to make this process. I'm trying to make myself obsolete. Give you the tools, go to the world, come back. We need to fine tuning. Go, go, go. No, no therapy fits everyone. Nothing heals everything. No therapy lasts forever. And I think this, this is what I'm trying to do. And what me and Galita are trying to do now is to do more Webinars and retreats for couples because not every couple needs therapy. Sometimes couples just need a crucible, need a hot place, need the language, the tools, and the, the potential state to work on and remarry their partners. It's it's possible. You don't always need therapy. Do you therapy's do you, become like a status symbol? What? So so interesting. Do you believe? I just want to know. Do you believe? Like, do you believe in history repeating itself, or do you believe in the possibility of change, even if you haven't seen it? Yes. History will repeat itself if you don't do personal work. Yeah. Right. We're all a variation on the, we're all a variation on the previous generation. The question is how much are we willing to work on ourselves to leave our kids with a better starting point? 
And I think it's really interesting because I'm thinking also about this talk, right? Because Rivka, we spoke about, right? Coming with Khalid. People are not ready to see that. They're not ready to see the couple together. It's weird for them. I'm, I'm, I'm owning it. I want to say the thing, right? About Because we had discussions about this, right? Yes. And I know. Well, for our listeners, we had had discussions about Galit coming on with a marriage therapist here um, and having like a dialogue. And I, I said, yes, I, I'm happy to do a follow-up actually on that. But yeah, we, we had I mean, a discussion. I feel like we, we, it's crazy. We covered so much and only scratched the surface. Yeah. It's really amazing. <laughs> but, but I just want to bring that back. I, I think it's not a coincidence because it's weird. It's weird. We're not used to seeing that. We're not used to that. And that's okay. And I think I, I'm realizing that that there's a, there's, a, there's, a, there's a revolution or a rebranding because our world needs stability right now we need that we yeah. need to have intimate relationships are what's happening in israel now is very scary also in the states like the world is, is going in very scary places and we really believe that if we could build soft like stick like loving homes you can bring all yourself there'll be less wars because i will feel challenged and stretched in my own house i'll, I'll feel seen and loved so i won't have to go and trample somebody else or push somebody else and I really believe in that. And, and for that, that is a, a lot of work and people don't want to do the work anymore. Unfortunately, you want to pill to solve it all away and it's a, or outsource it to therapy instead of going back in. Ugh. It's hard. <laughs> Marriage <laughs> takes work, huh? Like everything takes work. We have to work on ourselves. Marriage takes work. Like This is super hard work and I would have never been able to do this if I didn't have Billy as a willing partner in this experiment because... The difference between good therapists and amazing therapists is do they have a partner that's willing to do the work with them? That's what separates the good from the great. So this is this is hashtag the leak of a lot of this I wouldn't be able to do. I wouldn't be able, I might have would have read it, but I wouldn't know how it feels in my body if it wasn't for it. But I also hope that there is hope for couples who, if one partner is not willing to do it, that they can come to a place where both partners are if one starts the journey. Yeah, you can force your partner to change if you're willing to do the work. But the risk is, it, we call this high risk, high gain, but there's a gain, there's a risk that they might not. So you might, end their, you might end your marriage, but life is short. So would you rather be closeted in your current marriage or get ready for your next marriage? Do you believe in trying every single thing? Meaning like, it's interesting because I, I guess a person would have to lose all hope. The person who doesn't believe in divorce would have to lose all hope before going there. If you don't believe in divorce, if you don't believe in di- if divorce is not an option, it's going to be very hard for you to remarry your partner. Right. But that's, so you're that's saying I mean, I'm, dr- I'm dropping a truth bomb here. We have to wow. have like that. Okay. That is a condition because that's a, a second order, a deep second order change. You have to be able to willing to, to risk it all. So or, you or, have or, to believe in divorce in order to remarry. No, believe that you can get divorced. In order you, to it has to be, it, yeah, it has to be, it, it has to be a legitimate, legitimate. It has to be an option for you to really do a, what we call a second order change, like a, a, a qualitative, deep reimagination, right? But what happens when, so when you it, start thinking about your children and then that wouldn't necessarily be good for them? Oh, so then you're, oh, so let's just say that. Okay. So you basically say, oh, then I'll become a martyr and then I'll blame my kids. So my kids become my jailers. Now. So now your, 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 your parents are implicitly, unconsciously staying for you and it's your fault that they're in an unhappy marriage. That's a great inheritance to give your kids. I'm being sarcastic. That's not an excuse. They're, it's much, and Galit, she'll tell you, she's a, she's a product of two, twice divorced. She says, like, divorce sometimes is better from the kids and being two miserably unhappy parents together. 
So I ask, I ask couples, do you wish your kids this marriage? If they say no, then I'm like, okay, then it's time to change. Even if divorce, like if you wish it to your parent, if you wish your children have your marriage, then stay, then stay by all means. But maybe perhaps some marriages take more work than others. If in the dating process, we choose, when we choose our partner, um, we choose someone that's suited to us. So what would you say is the ideal way to look for a partner when you're dating? To have so so dating we'll do a whole nother episode about that but like basically the idea you can only attract your life somebody at the same level of differentiation the same level of emotional maturity or else you wouldn't be able to develop a pattern but when you date someone and you choose them unconsciously they're at the same level as you at the time okay i'm not talking about if you were coerced or forced because it or else you wouldn't be able to build a pattern with them so i believe that we can we all have another marriage in we might outgrow our 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 partner but it's not from standing you know standing on the pulpit or standing on the on the bleachers and saying you change you change no you do the change and then once you're worthy once you feel like you've done the work once you have done the work then you'll be able to better assess whether you have another marriage with this partner and some partners don't have another marriage in you and that's okay and i always told Galid, like if the day comes that I'm holding you back, that I'm not evolving with you, leave me. I mean, it's sad for me to say that, but I want her to fulfill her. We have one life. Like you want to, you want to fulfill it. Yeah. Yes. And I'm going to do the best I can to stay relevant. I'm going to do the best. I, I'm going to move to Kosaba. I'm going to work out. I'm going to look good. I'm going to, I'm going to be, I'm going to be a good person. I'm going to be a present parent. I'm going to, I'm going to work really hard to, to be worthy of the elite. Yeah. It's very comforting yeah. to know that that can be done within the marriage that a person is in, even if it's not easy right now. Yes. And yeah. marriage, it's not always easy. It's harmony, disharmony, repair. Harmony, disharmony, repair. That is that is the evolution of life. Woo! Whew. Goodness. Wow. That was we're going to do another, so we're gonna have to do a round two. But I just, first of all, thank you so much for your time. I, we, we actually usually like to end with like a quote or a parting message, like something that resonates with you that you like to share something that you connect to. Maybe I'll finish with a word. Can it be cool. a word? A word is great. Feel. I think Ooh, I the love, message I love for that. men, for men, the message is feel. Galit is speak. Women start speaking, men start feeling. And I feel like that, that is where, that is where we need to be going. And if I need to think of like a phrase, I mean, in marriage, I want to say it's freedom. Marriage is freedom. Free. I want to feel free. I want to be free, yeah. free, to, free to be myself. Well, and you know what's interesting? We often look at marriage as the opposite of freedom. Like that, exactly. that's what's going to hold us back from feeling free. Yeah. And that's that's the irony. I want to feel free. I want to feel like I can be myself. Uh, I, that I don't have to choose. Also, it's a yes and. Like we did in improv. The cardinal rule of improv is yes and. I'm also. I don't have to choose. I don't have to choose. I can have it all. Right. As opposed to like yes, but... <laughs> Or as what we call an either, either right. big or in a relationship, either a career or a family, either I'm up or I'm down, either I'm a winner or I'm a loser, either I'm beautiful or I'm ugly, either I'm happy or I'm sad. No, you have also, 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 also. Yeah, yeah that's like bittersweet. We, we interviewed Susan Cain about that whole idea of like bitter and sweet ex- coexisting, you know, it reminds me of that. Right. And you can't have one, you can't have light without dark, right? There's no light without shadow. Right. It's it's all duality. I mean, I think that that's why Carl Whitaker said that if you're not in a relationship, you're you're handicapped. There's a part of you that you'll never see because you need that other person to see that with. Wow. Here's another saying: I'm human. And you know what? And even my kids, like they've learned that, like they say, they'll say something, like they'll spill something on the floor, and I'll get upset. And then my son said to me the other day, she said, "He said it's official. I'm human." 
<laughs> That's so cute. <laughs> and it's true. Talk about playful. Here's another playful tip. I'm human. I'm human. It's true. And I, and I started laughing. You're right. It's super annoying you did that, but you're human. It's official. That's it. You're human. Hashem created us human. God created us human. And yes. So thank you for, for being vulnerable and human with us and sharing your humanity and giving us tools. Thank you for the tools. It's my pleasure. It's time. The world isn't ready, but we're going to bring the revolution. Starting with the three of us. So if you're listening to this, go to your partner, hug them, play this episode to them. You can do this change. It's not a myth. You can do it. It's a lot of work, but it's worth it.